This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views here in New York. During the bear market of the 1970s, Henry Kaufman became known on Wall Street and beyond as Dr. Doom. The nickname aptly reflected his gloomy prognostications about the American economy, financial markets, and government policies, too. So when the chief economist at Solomon Brothers, then one of the financial industry's preeminent firms, came out bullish in 1982, it was pretty big news. And it was also pretty prescient. Kaufman effectively predicted a decades-long bull market in the stock market. With the Trump bump fading in the stock market now, it felt like a good time to have Dr. Kaufman swing by Times Square and offer us some unique historical perspective. As you'll hear from my conversation, he's not super gloomy, but as his recent book, Tectonic Shifts in Financial Markets, says, he has some reservations about the current state of the financial system and the players in the financial system. So we, we talked about some of these, reflecting on his long career as a partner at Solomon Brothers way back then. This is the, the trading house that was made famous by Michael Lewis in Liar's Poker. He was also later a director at Lehman Brothers. In fact, he was on the board when it went bust. So he certainly learned a lot there. As Dr. Kaufman laments at Wall Street Banks today, it's very difficult for senior managers to know all the risk-taking going on in the system and in their firms. It's also true that because they are all now beholden to shareholders, they're all public companies, there's immense pressure to create profits, which creates a risk of its own. Sadly, there's not much that can be done about it all. At least that's what Dr. Kaufman tells us. So give a listen to my chat with Dr. Doom, Henry Kaufman himself. Well, thanks for coming in here. It's fantastic to have you. I mean, we don't usually get someone who has been working in the financial markets since the World War II to come in and give us perspective on what's going on today. It's very nice to be here again. We're looking at a moment in the markets where you know everybody is waiting for some sort of signal that it's okay, that, that a 15% bump or 12% bump in the S&P or the Dow is warranted. Um, everybody's expecting tax cuts and stimulus. I mean, how do you feel just about the market right now? Well, the market right now has quite a number of imperfections, but those imperfections are not coming to the fore immediately. It's going to take a little bit uh, of time. What we have in the market today is exceedingly low interest rates, uh, high multiples for stock prices, but at the same time, we have a huge amount of liquidity slushing around the global financial system, and that is reflected in the price structure. But at the same time, we're beginning to see 
that the United States is moving to a higher utilization of resources. Uh, unemployment rate is historically very low, at around 4.5%. The capacity to produce here in the United States is being pushed. And I would say we have not yet produced a policy going forward that would suggest anything that will sustain the economy for more than a couple of years in terms of its recovery. Given what you see, do you expect higher wage increases? Do you expect inflation? Are you worried about productivity? Well, the entire concept of productivity, which you just mentioned, is debatable. Uh, there are many concepts pertaining to economic statistics in particular that are not correct. The system has changed so much. The behavior has, has changed so much. But I, I would say the issue that we confront in the financial markets are certain imbalances. For example, business corporations today are much more heavily leveraged than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Today in the United States, there are only one or two business corporations, non-financial corporations, that are rated AAA. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, there were 60-some-odd. Back in the 1970s, a long time ago, there were 15 American commercial banks that were rated AAA. Today, there are none. Today, even though the uh, financial situation of the banking system has improved, it's nowhere back to the levels of 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Non-financial corporations are heavily indebted today. The universe of uh, junk bonds, high-yield bonds, has grown rapidly. And there's no indication that that pressure to increase the universe of junk bonds is going to ease soon unless interest rates rise uh, here somewhere soon. Business corporations have borrowed to buy back shares. Business corporations have borrowed to acquire other businesses. Uh, but nevertheless, the balance sheet structure has weakened, even though corporate profits have risen quite dramatically in the last 10 years or so, when you look through the line. So there is an imbalance here in the financial system that cannot be quickly reset. How do you think it plays? I mean, you're famous, of course. You, you, for, for, you were known as Dr. Doom for, for predicting correctly the bear market and bonds in the 1970s. You then reversed course and the market never went, it just went up. Um, what do you think under the sort of new, the Trump economics, if you can call it that, what do you, and given what you're saying about leverage in the system, what's your sense of the market, stock market and the bond market? My sense of, for example, the bond market is that interest rates will continue to rise irregularly here for a while. Uh, the Fed has more or less programmed in another two or three increases in the federal funds rate. The 30-year Treasury bond yield is around 3% today. Uh, over the next 12 months, perhaps, it'll go to 3.5%. But the point of inflection hasn't been reached yet. Um, there are certain issues that the market will confront. For example, uh, towards the end of the year, the Federal Reserve is talking about trying to unwind or begin the process of unwinding its large holdings of securities. Even the announcement of that will have some retarding influence on the bond market. 
I don't think the Fed will be able to liquidate much of those securities very soon, but the announcement of it will be quite significant. Right. Uh, well, I mean, putting that trillions of dollars of supply into the market will be difficult, wouldn't it? Even, even the announcement of putting a little bit right. into the market rather than acquiring it. Right. Is, is, and, of course, if we face another slowdown in the next couple of years, the Fed will be a buyer again. That's an important issue, at least coming in the bond market. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue of who will be at the Federal Reserve in the next 12 months is also a significant development. Well, you talk a bit in your book, which is called Tectonic Shifts in Financial Markets. You, you, you talk a bit about this issue, about the, about the people running the, the Federal Reserve. And you, you, you say that Paul Volcker, for instance, uh, never got full, didn't get his credit due when it, when, he, when it was deserved, although certainly he has since. But, I mean, what is your sense, given your, your view of the historic arc of relationships between administrations, markets, and Federal Reserve leaders, where do you see us going with, I mean, there has been no bust-up between Trump and Janet Yellen yet. No, uh, uh, there hasn't been. And in the post-war history of the government and the Federal Reserve has been not of tough confrontation. Mm. Initially, when Bill Martin was chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1951 to 1968, 1968, there were, there were confrontations. Mm -hmm. um, I recite one in, in the book where Bill Martin, as chairman, was in the Waldorf Astoria here, and coming towards him was the president of the United States, Mr. Truman. Mm -hmm. And this was at an early time when the Federal Reserve had its reached independence and had agreed only to temporarily buy government securities when the government was trying to sell securities and try to stabilize the market. But then it was going to move aside and let the market determine the rate. Right. Well, Mr. Truman didn't like it. <laughs> and as the chairman of the Fed was walking towards Mr. Truman, Mr. Truman walked up to him and said, you are a traitor to the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Mm. Um, now, that was a confrontation, so to say. Uh, right. So, so, a so president didn't mince his words in a different time. And yeah. but then, of course, you had Paul Volcker when he was raising interest rates uh, during, you know, well, to, to uh, combat inflation. Paul, uh, Paul Volcker did the heavy lifting. Yeah. He did more heavy lifting than any other chairman of the Federal Reserve in the post-war era. He did the unpleasant thing. Mm. It is always wonderful, and, and everybody applauds when the chairman eases and the market <laughs> is accommodated and prices rise. And therefore, you had Alan Greenspan become a folk hero right. in, uh, in, in, in many ways. Well, it was uh, a, the bond market was on a, on a bull tear run for the entire market, period. The stock market was rising. Yeah. And so uh, Paul probably was the most dominant and most important chair that the Fed had had in the post-war period because he had to persevere. And when you persevere, that's not a very pleasant task. It, it is like telling your children, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And children don't like it. No. And the public didn't like it for, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I remember walking into, it's in the book, in the Paul's office one time when he was chairman, and there were all these bricks, building bricks, lined up in his secretary's office. And I said, what's this all about? And he said, well, the Bricklayers Union sent these to the chairman with a note saying that we don't need these anymore, meaning the building industry right, right. is at, is at its end for the time being. So uh, how, how 
do you expect things will play out between Janet Yellen? Uh, her term comes up in February of next year. The, you know, we'll have a sense of whether the president will re- reappoint her or whether she'll retire or, or want another term. What do you how do you see it? Playing well, out? And by the way, there are, I don't know, three or four other holes on the Federal Reserve yes. Board of Governors. Every chair, with the exception of one in the post-World War II period, served more than one term. That other exception was Bill Miller. He was the worst Fed chairman in history, right? uh, was appointed by President Carter Mm. and served less than his term. Yeah. uh, Then uh, then four years and was pushed aside. Uh, So everyone has served two terms. And some, uh, and quite a few, were really appointed once they got into office by the opposite, reappointed by the president of the opposition party. Greenspan. Now, so this would be Bernanke. Greenspan, Bernanke, uh, Paul Volcker, and so on. Now, this would be the first time, the first time that a chair did not serve more than one term, with the exception of one, which I mentioned, Bill Miller. Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, I think you, you, uh, we have to recognize it isn't just the chairmanship that is at stake here, but new governors have to be appointed. By the time Janet Yellen uh, steps down or has to be reappointed, the president will have had an opportunity, even before then, to have a major influence on monetary policy by appointing uh, and filling the vacancies. Uh, And then there is the issue, whom do you appoint if he doesn't appoint Janet Yellen? The first post-war chairman, uh, Bill um, Bill Martin was not a fully trained economist, but he was a chairman of the of the stock exchange, head of the export import bank, served right. at the U.S. Treasury, had quite a bit of uh, educational training at Columbia University, so he wasn't really a neophyte to to the process. All the others, uh, you had Arthur Burns, expert in uh, the field of economics and finance, to some extent, a business cycle expert, Greenspan. Paul Volcker, uh, trained within the so federal PhDs Reserve. in economics. And, of course, everyone yeah. uh, has had has an economic training, a lot of it, some mm. academic training, many of them. Now, what will President Trump do? Will he go outside of that group and appoint a businessman again or a banker? And that's up for grabs. And... Will he appoint someone who has economic and financial leanings that uh, appeal to him? Yeah. Uh, he, I think he likes uh, che- he likes easy money. So, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so that rules out John Taylor, maybe. <laughs> well, I would very much doubt that John Taylor will become the uh, chair. Yeah. Uh, that would rule. Uh, uh, I, I think there might be a fair chance that he will look for a, br- a banker of sorts. Yeah. Rather than a purely trained economist. Well, Kevin Warsh is someone whose whose name has come up on on many occasions. He's an well, he, but he, uh, he, that also would um, would be uh, a difficult judgment for him to make in terms of the interest rate leanings uh, of Kevin Warsh. Uh, I, I suspect he would prefer somebody with financial background and some some financial experience, but not necessarily. A trained economist. Mm-hmm. 
that might not be so bad. We, we don't know because uh, the performance of the Federal Reserve in the post-war period has been highly checkered. Right, right. Uh, as you know, in my book, I say that it's very unusual. Here, the Federal Reserve has vaulted itself into high prominence, high prominence, largely because of the mistakes it made. Uh, that's it's kind of a strange statement. But what were the mistakes? The Federal Reserve did not fully understand what the implications were of the securitization of mortgage securities mm -hmm. market. The Federal Reserve did not fully understand the implications of the huge increase in financial derivatives and what it would mean for the conduct of monetary policy and how to guide the financial system. And equally important, the Federal Reserve did not say anything about the removal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which increased the concentration in the financial system by huge amounts. In 1990, the 10 largest financial institutions in the United States controlled 10% of financial assets. Today, the 10 largest control uh, probably 80% or more. Yes. The Fed allowed this without fully making an evaluation of what consolidation would really mean. Well, to be fair, was the Fed focused on its dual mandate and not the third one, which is lurking in the background, which is financial stability, I that suppose. That is correct. That, that, that is right, but it didn't. It was these shortcomings that allowed the Federal Reserve and pushed it into a higher level of prominence because now it had to deal with these big financial conglomerates, this huge financial market, this highly diverse financial system, and it increased its control, its, it, its opportunity to have more control over the system. Right, right. Rather than the other way. Well, Alan Greenspan said, well, securitization is wonderful. It diversifies risks. But it increased the volume of risk. Sure. Sure. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, you were at Solomon Brothers for, yes. for decades. Yes. Solomon Brothers was, in many ways, you created, that securitized the mortgage yes, market with yes, uh, Lou Ranieri and, uh, and his merry band of, yes. of uh, mortgage bond yes, traders. Uh, do you lament in any way the sort of the financial innovations that, that, that came out of that? And also, do you lament the end of that partnership structure that, that held I, for many years on Wall Street? I, I don't lament the changes, the new securities that came into the market, which we were originators of and so on, started to trade more so than any others in, in the street. But I do lament, A, the failure of the central bank and authorities not understanding what this is about. And I do lament that this process of securitization, increasing all kinds of opportunities to trade and so on, that this would change the structure of Wall Street. And it meant shifting from a partnership in Wall Street to an incorporation. And the underlying aspect of that shift certainly was that you had a capital that could be leveraged. And you had a capital that could be leveraged whereby the individuals that were running the activity 
we're not personally liable anymore. So you, you expanded the capital base, which expand, would have been one, expanded, one argument. You expanded but the capital you moved it away from the partners. They were no longer the holding the bag. I, there's, I don't know whether I told the story. I think I did in the book. When I became a partner in 1967, a long time ago, my mentor at the time was Sidney Homer, and he called me. I think I was at home at one time and said, I want to tell you next week, uh, Bill Solomon is going to call you in and offer you a partnership. That was a, an extraordinary event in my yeah. life. And then Sidney Homer said to me, but I want you to tell your wife that next week when you sign the partnership papers, you are going to be personally liable for $2 billion. <laughs> <laughs> When you join a, a financial institution today, and they're all mostly incorporated, you're not liable. You're, you're not liable at all in, in the sense. No. That has re removed an important constraint within the system. Do you think that there's that we've come and found ways to, to create a little bit more of that responsibility inside the banking institutions? I mean, when you think about, well, for instance, Credit Suisse, paid its its top folks in the stuff that they couldn't sell for instance they had this whole s yeah. structure that that just recently paid out for instance or you know you have clawbacks and malice clauses and you have certainly more uh, deferred compensation do you think it gets closer or is it well, still the same it's, problem it's this is some improvement but it's a long long way from what we really should have. You have to remember in these large financial conglomerates, it is very difficult for the senior management to fully know all the risk taking in the system, number one. Number two, the system is now so structured that there is pressure to create profits because stockholders demand profits. The traders, if they trade more and do more volume and do more business, get a higher compensation. Investment bankers, if they do more deals, they get a higher compensation. And if they don't get it, then they go elsewhere. In, in addition uh, to that, you have to remember Chuck Prince, who was the head of Citi uh, back a decade ago, said, as long as the music plays, we have to be on the dance floor. Yeah because of the stockholders, because of the compensation schedule, and, and so on. That hasn't changed uh, that much. The musical yet. chairs game is still being played that, on Wall that, Street. That, mm. There isn't, well, uh, I'll tell you a, a, another story which may not be in the book. Uh, we were oh, sitting good. in an executive committee meeting and in the 1970s, and a young man came in from a trading desk and handed Bill Solomon, the managing partner, a slip. And we had done a $150 million bond trade, apparently, corporate bond trade, with an institution. It was a large amount, and we did it uh, really uh, not as a, as, uh, as a dealer, not as a broker, repositioned. Mm -hmm. And the young man uh, was asked by Bill, well, what did we take out of the trade? And he said, well, I think a point. And so Bill said, well, asked the partner to come in who handled the trade, and the young man came in. Well, he had been made a partner only a couple of years ago, but prior to that. And Bill again asked, how much do you take out? Point. And Bill said to him, do you know, I understand these were all corporate bonds of high credit quality. There's no problem. You also know this is an important institutional client. 
And you know we don't take a point out of a trade like that. You go back to the account and give him what he was entitled to. And number two, so that you remember this, we're going to reduce your participation in the profits at the end of the year. <laughs> True story. Now, that would not occur today. No. And we talk about relationship banking. <laughs> of course, the client would know that that's not going to that they're, they're, they're giving up a point or two. The client would know, buyer beware. Yeah. You know, and, and so on. But it was a different environment, a different time, which we cannot create very quickly. The one thing that we could do is, of course, among other things that could be done, is, of course, any of these compensations that senior management get in the institution, the payoff is late. And number two, uh, top management uh, could easily be held accountable for the, for the liabilities mm. uh, that are incurred. And if they are, they may be fined. Well, you, you were on the board of Lehman Brothers. Yes. And, I mean, it'd be interesting to, to get your perspective on that. I mean, Dick Fold, the CEO and chairman, had almost a billion dollars worth of compensation tied up in, in, in Lehman Brothers stock. And yet still, he failed to heed so many of the warning signs after the, 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 the failure of Bear Stearns. And, and, and I just wonder, you know, what you learned from that experience and well, there are a couple of things. Um, financial history, to have objectivity in financial history, takes some time. Mm. All the participants surrounding the events of 2008, 2009, the major ones, uh, secretaries of treasuries, chairman of the Fed, uh, SEC heads, and all have written their own memoirs about this. But it is, these are reflections from their perspective. These are reflections justifying their actions. It is not a critical observation that is made 30 years from now, 10 years from now, and so on. So we, that's understandable. Uh, and journalists write about this right away, trying to get at the truth, but it's very hard. That's one thing I've learned. Well, I think it took Gal Galbraith like 20 years to write his book on the Great Crash. Is that's a good right. Reason. An example yeah. of that. The, the, the second issue here is that there have been reports now that Lehman should not have been allowed to fail. And I suspect if the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Fed had been told what the consequences would be of that failure, uh -uh, mm. I doubt whether they would have said let it go. And, and indeed, there is an issue that has come up, uh, which I mentioned in the book, by several academics who have now reviewed all of this, saying that the responsibility for Lehman should have been decided by the Federal Reserve. Or not by Hank and Paulson not, and, at Treasury. And, and, and not by a the political, Treasury. And not by, uh, yeah. by a political point. The third thing I think we ought to recognize, what is at stake here is the issue of marketability. What was marketable at the beginning of 2008, very reasonably marketable, was not as marketable by the time Bear Stearns had a problem. And what was marketable by the time Bear Stearns had the problem was not as marketable by the time mm. Lehman had the problem. So there was a sequence of a deterioration in credit quality which the central bank didn't want to recognize its implications of what was going on. And marketability is a key issue 
underlying the balance sheet of financial institutions because financial institutions are heavily leveraged. Right. So you take an asset that was marketable and all of a sudden it's, it's less marketable a half year later and you've got a deep problem. That's what I mentioned, that Credit Suisse deal, where they basically took all the unmarketable securities, wrapped them up, and gave them to uh, their employees, yeah. made them eat their own cooking, as it were. <laughs> and it turned out very well. They made yeah. through two and a half, three times their money yeah. over, over, over time. Over a period of time, those assets, as the credit crisis uh, diminishes and things return to some level of normality, rise in value, those yeah. assets. But there was... In, I think very enormous political pressure not to allow Lehman to survive, to let it fail. And no one has ever said to Ben Bernanke or to Paulson, if you knew exactly what would happen the day after. Would you do it again? AIG f- mm. uh, hit, oh, yeah. hit the fan. And what happened subsequently, would you have done anything differently? I don't think there was a full understanding of the calamity uh, no. that, was, that, that was there. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, that my, my concern at the time being at the, at the board was I envisioned there was going to be a great problem. And I personally would have allowed Lehman that Sunday night to say, we are not declaring bankruptcy. But there was pressure from the government, from mm. the Fed, to make an announcement on th- Sunday night before the markets opened in Japan. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and uh, and as I understand it, uh, the head of the SEC, Mr. Cox, was on the telephone. No relation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the board. Right. Yeah, uh, to the board. And it was reported that the Secretary of Treasury was, was standing behind him, urging Cox to say, well, you you got to declare bankruptcy. You know, well... Suppose we hadn't. <laughs> I don't know. What would that day have been like? Well, the Federal Reserve would have had to come in and stabilize the market. So you would have forced the hand of the regulators then. That's right. Can I, can I, you, you in your book, talk in, about the need for people in business on Wall Street, and I assume in politics too, to some degree, to have a sense of history. You, I mean, we're living through a pretty extraordinary uh, administration. Um, you know, every day there seems to be a new crisis, all of which makes it very difficult to see how we get to some of the economic pledges that have yes. been made uh, and continue to be made on taxes and other things. I'm just curious, you know, you, you've got this Comey situation that's that's bubbling out there as well. You lived through Watergate. You saw, so would, you would have seen from the sort of beginning of the acute phase of the crisis to after the president had resigned, a 40 percent decline in stock prices. I mean, it's almost something apart from the, the sort of 2008 relatively short-lived bear market, mm-hmm. relatively. Yeah. Um, do you think there are some parallels if, as you look back? Are you concerned? You mean the political? Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, no. Uh, because the economics fundamentals are totally different, as you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, the, the economics and financial situation is, is far different. Look. When you go back to the 1950s or 1960s, the banks were highly liquid. Business corporations had a high credit rating. Mm. Banks behaved modestly. The senior management of institutions still had in the back of their minds and a memory of the 1930s, if not 
they were informed about that by their immediate predecessors uh, and, and so on. All that has, all that has changed, mm-hmm. uh, re- really. The financial markets were much more segmented. Yeah. A bank was a bank, an investment bank was an investment bank, insurance company was an insurance company. Well, that and was partly regulation. I mean, you mentioned Glass-Steagall. Everybody knew their assignment, right. so, so, so to speak. So the comp- to compare anything with an earlier period with today, uh-uh. And, and as I say in, in the book, you can't go back home again. <laughs> you can't recreate Humpty Dumpty. Hmm. Uh, that, uh, that's, that's gone. We are in, in a new setting with difficult challenges as such and reestablishing uh, some essence of normality is going to be quite difficult uh, because we're not going to be entitled to get what we all aspire to right away. Right. Uh, we're, we're going to be in an environment of very modest economic growth. And not dynamic economic growth for the time being. Hmm. It's going to take time to reset some of the institutions that we have. I indicated to you, for example, uh, I talked about marketability, how that concept has changed. Do Do we know what marketability is over a business cycle? Or does anybody quote to you when he quotes to you a junk bond? And he says, well, today, so on, and you can buy $5 million, $10 million of a bond. But if interest rates tightened... Good luck, right? Good luck. Uh, the entire concept of liquidity has changed. Years ago, liquidity was what you had on the asset side of the balance sheet. Cash in hand. Marketable liquid securities. Liquid assets, yeah. marketable security, turnover of inventory, and so on. Today... Liquidity is defined as, how much can I borrow? What's my line of credit? How much is my credit card? Can, right, can and those things close up in an instant. That's, that's, that's right. Yeah. It's completely different. Right. So do I ascertain a sense of a little bit of doom or just a, 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 a little bit of concern about where we're headed in the markets? Well, we're, we're headed in, in, the, in the markets in, in, envi- in an environment that ultimately will constrain us. I, I would also say that in, in a broad perspective, eventually everything in the market will be known. Uh, <laughs> and just like everything in our, in our private life will, will be known. Well, that's certainly the case these days. Yeah, well, uh, you, you, you hear all the cyber attacks and all this sort yeah. of thing. Well, um, all that is about trying to unearth secrets. The things I know, as we go forward in the next 30, 40 years, more and more will be known about everyone. There will be fewer and fewer secrets, personally, uh, in a business sense, and so on. So it'll be harder to get an edge, and harder and harder. It's, it's going to be more difficult. Well, it's like Warren Buffett talks about, I mean, I suppose, is why you buy the index. That's right. And just pay as few, that, few fees as you that's can. That's exactly right. Well, look, it has been fantastic catching up with you. Well, thank you. Uh, congratulations on the book. Um, and we'll get you back here uh, before the next bear market. <laughs> Well, <laughs> <laughs> great to see you. All right, thank you. Like I said, Dr. Kaufman is not as gloomy as he was during, say, the Watergate era, but I can't say I feel mm, that bullish after our chat. 
It was great to tap into his historical knowledge, particularly given the potential for tensions between the chaotic Trump White House and the Federal Reserve. As he told us, looking at some of the things he learned in the past, that's uh, one relationship we're going to have to watch. That's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast Summer Reading Series. I'd like to thank our producers, Bethel Habti, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening in. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other podcasts from other folks here at Reuters. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob One Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.